The description of the temple goes on for a while. It didn't give you the full details, which are recorded in all of chapters 3 and 4 of 2 Chronicles and paralleled in 1 Kings. This temple decked out in gold is another thing of legend. We talk about Jesus worshiping at the second temple, but there is yet to be an excavation of the first temple. There's no wall, no golden pomegranate, no bronze engraved item dug up from some ancient sandy place. It is only legend for now, but who knows what might get dug up in the desert next. Until then, this palace that tells of Israel's great wealth under King Solomon is another hope, a legend of greatness. The importance of the temple is one of those things that doesn't quite make sense to us. For us, if God has a dwelling place, it is in heaven and more likely to be all around us. But I am reminded of this temple near Atlanta, Georgia. I first visited it because I nearly drove off the road when I saw it. A stunning piece against the landscape and so completely unexpected along a boring parkway in the suburbs. It was designed to be that startling and eye-catching. The Hindus worshiping there would say Mandir, not temple. But still it is what we would call a temple, the home of the gods, a place of worship and a cultural center. The Bible says that King Solomon's temple was carved in the stone quarry so that no sound of an iron tool was heard on the premises. The same is true for this temple outside of Atlanta. There are more than 34,000 individual pieces of stone in this temple. All of them were carved by hand in India, then shipped to the U.S. to be assembled. It was constructed using more than 1.3 million volunteer hours. As was true for Solomon's temple, people come to this one to make sacrifices of food. While the Bible is clear that some of these offerings of meat, bread, and produce are used to feed the priest working in the temple, in this temple it is not so clear what happens with food placed at the feet of the statues of gods are treated as gods by both the devotees and the monks that attend them. But even in this place that seems so different from Christian religious practice, it was clear that this place was meant to be somewhere to encounter the holy. It was meant to be a place of deep community. Very little of the vast building is for worship. Instead, it's for gathering and learning and eating Every single day, this temple is open for the community to gather. In those early days, they were happy to welcome visitors for worship or just to look around. They were glad to talk about their faith and their gods. In this version of Hinduism, the monks who tend the gods who live in the temple live a life of rigorous devotion. As part of their vows, they agree to never speak to a woman again. 
Because of this, a man's mother must give her permission for him to become a monk. When I was there for one of the visits, there was a group from the local Lutheran church. I happened to join their tour group. And as part of the tour, we were invited to go and look around and to come back with our questions. When we gathered back together, one woman from the group was late and she arrived looking rather harried and out of sorts. And it turns out she had wandered into the monk's living quarters. She could not find her way out. So as they who had taken a vow to not speak to women after they became a monk, they kept their vow and she was just confused. I don't remember how she actually made it out from the area that was not public. But I do remember that the guide was almost as confused and harried as she was. But no less gracious a host. So these practices that sound so strange in a modern setting are still very much in the imagination of Solomon's temple and the temple where Jesus worshipped. There were holy places that were occupied only by the male priests. The holiest of the holy places could only be entered once a year by a single priest. There were ways to offer a variety of sacrifices for the people, so parts of the temple were always open. But maybe even more importantly, those temples held a court of women and a court of Gentiles and a porch for teaching and gates where people gathered to beg. The temple is a place of deep community, open to everyone. Yes, it houses God, but it is the heart and soul of a people. It is what holds them together tightly, especially like in the time of Solomon, when their culture is threatened by invaders. It is a place of great material wealth and the far more valuable sorts of wealth that cannot be counted. And while this temple is ornate and elaborate and expensive, it is important that this is the people's wealth. Yeah, the king is rich, of course, but the kingdom, the kingdom is rich under his reign. During Solomon's time, the Bible says, silver is as common as stone in Jerusalem. The exotic trees become as common as sycamores. Solomon's good reign brings wealth to all the citizens, not just to the king. We are once again reminded that Solomon had enough wisdom all on his own to first ask to rule God's people well. This king, who was richer than any king before him or since, had more than enough to care for all of his citizens. No one goes hungry in Solomon's kingdom. The kingdom's wealth is spent not on armies and weapons, but on peace. Solomon's alliances led him to have 700 wives of royal birth. Those marriages ensured peace with nations far and near. In a world where polygyny was expected, it was not so strange a move. Polygyny, the practice of having multiple wives, is noted among many leaders in the Bible. And in most cases, the marriage of a leader was a way of building an alliance with a foreign nation. 
alongside those alliances made because he had 700 wives, Solomon also welcomed dignitaries from all over the world. They came seeking his wisdom and brought him extravagant gifts, gifts of gold, spices, exports from their land, and horses. He welcomed all, offering them lodging and the best food while they were there. One of the rulers who made her way to Solomon was the Queen of Sheba. Sheba is normally placed in Ethiopia, and so she came with a huge entourage, bringing camels carrying spices, large offerings of gold, and precious stones. When she came, Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too difficult for him. The Bible says that when the queen saw his wisdom, the palace he had built, the food on his table, his servants' quarters, how good his attendants were, and the offerings he made, all of it took the queen's breath away. She praised God and gave Solomon the largest gift of spices that had ever been given in Israel. In the end, the Bible says, King Solomon gave the queen everything she wanted, even more than she had brought to him. Then she and her servants returned to her homeland. From there, the Ethiopian legend grows. It grows so much that it says the queen and Solomon had a child together, Menelik I. He begins the Solomonic dynasty in Ethiopia, which lasts from the time of Solomon, whatever that was, until 1974. The dynasty ends with King Menelik II. But once, as a young man, Menelik I travels to Jerusalem to meet his father. When there, Solomon tries to convince him, please stay, rule here. But he refuses and returns to his homeland. By theft or design, the Ark of the Covenant that was in the temple goes with him and is kept in Ethiopia even to this day. Because of the queen and her son Menelik, Judaism grows in Ethiopia. It is present from the time of Solomon, so that when we get a story in the New Testament where there's a man from Ethiopia reading from the scroll of Isaiah in a chariot, we know he was already a Jew. The apostle Philip comes by and asks him what he's, what he's reading, and he asks him to explain, to explain it to him. And that Ethiopian man converts to Christianity. But all along, some of God's people have been in Ethiopia. This queen of Sheba is the queen of the south mentioned in both Matthew and Luke. And you can read about all of this legend in the Kibranagast, an Ethiopian work. The title translates to The Glory of the King. When we look at this kingdom of unsurpassed wealth, wealth that results in a temple for God and all the people, wealth that means the people are well, well cared for, not just the king, wealth that leads to wealth and beauty in other countries, even a dynasty outside of Israel. It reminds me of Wakanda. 
you don't need to be a fan of Marvel Comics to have seen the 2018 film Black Panther. At one point, it was the ninth highest grossing film of all time, seen by plenty of Marvel fans and people like me who have no idea what you mean when you say the Fantastic Four. Wakanda is a land well hidden to outsiders located somewhere near Ethiopia. It's kind of helpful for our story. Because of a meteorite made up of an otherwise unknown element called vibranium, the technology of Wakanda far surpasses that of the outside world. The people there enjoy a quality of life greater than the rest of the world. They are happy and peaceful and well cared for. And when their secret is finally learned, they answer with a call to share their great wealth with the world. For most of their history, this legendary country of Wakanda is granted peace and prosperity. It is unlike anything the world has ever known, except maybe this reign of King Solomon. And so, as we look at King Solomon's great wealth, like with wisdom, we are left mostly with questions. What does it look like for everyone to share in a nation's wealth? What changes if we found out that Solomon's temple really existed? How do we make peace with neighbors who are different from us? What stories do we tell about nations? What happens when we reimagine a place we know as poor, like Ethiopia, as a place of great wealth? And what, what do we expect from a good ruler? Amen.